what I really like about fiction and drama in particular, you, you sort of, you pick a story, you set up a set of circumstances, and you don't know what's going to happen. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Juliet Jakes. Hello. Hi. My grandmother said Jakes. Yeah, know. no, it's well. It Hattie Jakes is, is said Jakes. It's sort of gold standard, I Absolutely. think, for this. Yeah. So yeah, the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? Uh, we met quite recently doing the Geek Show Off event with Steve Cross and Dawn Foster and Alice Bell. I think that's the sort of circle of people where we we cross over, isn't it? Yeah, um, I think so. I was talking about the sort of pains of being somebody who reads kind of clever books and goes to watch lower league football matches, right? And you were talking on. Remind me what you were talking. Oh, on. I was think. I think I was talking about Athena for that one. That's yes, right. I was. I was outing myself as having fancied a. a, a a version of Athena in a in a children's book when I was right. a, when I was a child. Well, I grew up with Commodore sixty four games. Right, so, you know, if you fancy people on those, the graphics were really very crude. Yeah, so, you've just yeah. got to work with what you've got. Exactly. Yeah, there wasn't much in right. Holly and Surrey. So yeah, yeah. no, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, no I, internet at that point. So. I was a I was a Spectrum ZX eighty uh, so user. So probably even worse, with right. limited range of colours <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's not go too far. Down no, that. no, no, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, and that's how I know you. And I, I, I on that night because I've just like a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Dawn uh, oh, yeah. for for this show. I was reminded, but when I was talking to her about that night, we did this sort of show. We all did our bits and all of that stuff. And then afterwards, you guys all were all going for a drink, and I went outside for a cigarette, and I had one of those kind of really socially awkward moments where I was like, "Oh God, people like." People I respect, I want to talk to them, but will they just be annoyed by me? Uh, oh, so no, no, you should have I ran off. I know, yeah. I know. Um, next I feel time. like I should yeah. have done, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, sometimes it's like big groups are hard to hard to crack. Oh, I'm much same, better one-on-one, yeah. I think. Oh, same, me too. I'd much, much rather sit with one or two other people in right. a quiet place. Yeah, no, yeah, that's my, uh, yeah. People don't expect that sometimes because I do a lot of things on stage. So they think that what I want is to be loud in the centre of that's a party. It's a very but... introvert thing, isn't it? I mean, I'm very happy, well, not happy, but I'm perfectly comfortable giving a presentation to sort of 200 people and quite often I end up having to do something like that the idea of like going to the pub after terrifies me and if there's any way I can get out of it then I will um, right yeah so so yeah it's 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 you know it's that sort of intimate interactions with a kind of group of people actually is often a lot more scary than just giving out Definitely to a large group scary. yeah yeah for sure so you're you're involved in sort of lots of areas of of write like of write, writing about subjects that, like you said already, really a surprising they they surprisingly go together within within you. Yeah, you write about football and you write about literature, and those are sort of two camps that aren't considered to go together. I guess uh, unless you're David Peace. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, my sort of core writing is sort of literature, film visual art and performance art right occasionally music i mean i love music but actually i try not to write about music so i think it's nice to keep some things as hobbies and also most of the music i like is quite old uh, i'm not that au fait with what's happening now right and you know i don't really want to kind of write for the sort of retro music circuit so so i tend to leave music so there's kind of core kind of art stuff which is really what i want to do yeah and then there's this transgender stuff I've done, right? which, uh, you know, had a sort of set of political aims behind it, a certain sort of expediency to it. And I kind of like writing about that stuff, but I got kind of typecast as doing that for a long time. Right. And actually, I always wanted it to just be integrated into a sort of corpus of things I write about. And then the football stuff, you know, actually, I sort of do genuinely enjoy writing about football. And for a long time, I sort of try to sort of defend football as a kind of art form you know people would would say to me you know how can you like football it's so kind of crude and gross and the culture's horrible and you know in lots of ways it is and you know if if I'd have known in 1990 when I started watching football that it would end up this sort of horrible kind of venal egomaniac multi-million pound thing that it is now I probably wouldn't have signed up to it but I got sucked in by the 1990 World Cup and and by Norwich's very near Premier League win in 1993 and that kind of grabbed me really and for a long time I sort of tried to defend football as some sort of art form and I would say to people you know you give me James Joyce or Shakespeare or Sergei Eisenstein or whatever 
whatever, and I'll give you Zidane or French Pushkas or, or what have you. And I realised that actually, no, you know, I mean, much as I love love those people, a lot of the time football, when it's conceived as kind of art form, leaves me cold. And, you know, really what I sort of enjoy is like a bunch of people singing, you're not very good and you stink of fish at a bunch of Grimsby fans, <laughs> you know. Uh, and actually, yeah, it's a much more kind of base, sort of stupid, ridiculous sort of aspects of football culture. Right. And, you know, that kind of dancing around the edge of what's sort of acceptable. You know, a lot of the time you'll, you'll be in a football crowd and you hear something shouted that you think, oh, oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's great. Or no, that's just, I just don't like that. And I wish people weren't singing or saying that. And sometimes, you you know, you sort of, you you find yourself in situations where there's a behaviour of a crowd that sort of feels... You know, you have to sort of sit and think about whether or not it's acceptable. I mean, the, the piece I did at the event we met at was sort right. of about exactly that, was being yeah. at a Colchester game where a 10-year-old kid in a sort of half-time penalty shootout kind of made a point of winding up the Norwich fans who I was stood with, uh, who just sort of rewarded him with chance of wanker, 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 and, you know, directed at a 10-year-old, right. uh, which you know, I, I felt very awkward about. Yeah. Uh, but also, you know, this, this kid was sort of old enough and clearly immersed enough in football culture to know that if he runs up to all the fans behind the goal, kind of like holding out his chest and kissing his Colchester badge that he's you know he's, he's winding up he's you know I think he I would have understood that at that age yeah and so there's a really sort of weird ambiguous moment where I just thought was that socially acceptable right. or not and I concluded that it was <laughs> not where I expected to be but yeah it's a far cry from kind of watching Alan Rob Grier films and thinking yeah he's saying really interesting things about the nature of memory and recognition right you know? yeah no you're right and and it's interesting that you say that because I mean yeah I I don't I've tried to get football for a while yeah. because of the fact that lots of friends of mine like football and I I I, I don't want to be a cultural snob and I don't want to be all of those things and I guess I'm working against kind of negative stereotypes that I've got yeah. you know of football supporters less and you know I try to remember a friend of mine once said about about Bell and Sebastian that the problem is not the music but the fans mm. and uh, people have said similar things about the Smiths or whatever oh, gosh, and, yeah. and, and 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 this is and and with football I think it's it's a similar thing I try not to write off the game necessarily just because I've had sort of experiences of being afraid of football fans or you know big, well, group, me too, big yeah, groups yeah. of men scare me yeah well same uh, yeah sure um, but I mean you know there's a football just grabbed me as a sort of child, really. And, you know, I hated it, actually, till I was about eight. And then the sort of World Cup just kind of sucked me in. You know, it's this very visceral love of the actual sport itself on a sort of aesthetic level, I guess. Yeah. A level of drama and, and yeah, kind of artfulness to it. And then, you know, from there, you have to sort of reconcile yourself with the wider culture. And, of course, there's plenty that's wrong with it. And there have been numerous times where I've been in a football crowd and just thought, God, this is appalling. Many, many times, uh, notably in the Premier League, uh, you know, I support Norwich City for reasons unknown even to myself. Cause I'm not, <laughs> not from Norfolk, uh, from Surrey, and, you know, there wasn't really a team quite near enough to be the sort of obvious team to go to at the time. I'd probably support Crawley Town now, but they weren't really so on the map like 25 years ago. Right. And, you know, for example, like Norwich will play, you know, Liverpool or Everton, and, you know, all the songs will be about kind of benefits and signing on, and, you know, it's just despicable. I mean, I really, really hate it. And, you know, I just sort of stand there, you know, actually I've been on benefits quite a lot over the last few years for various right. reasons, and, you know, I'll just stand there sort of screaming, yeah, we can pay mine as well then, can't you? And, you know, no one listens. I mean, um, I wonder how many people who are chanting that are on benefits. Well, exactly, yeah. Or have been, you thing. know. It's, you know, it's not really sort of feasible to survey them, but no. um, you know, um, but there've been many times where I've, I've I've been you know disgusted by things I've heard at football matches. But on the other hand, you know, lots of the people I know through football have been wonderful. I mean, right. I, my Guardian series on kind of transition uh, got commissioned through somebody I know through football, uh, another Norwich fan who was a sub-editor there. My group of friends when I transitioned uh, at the football were just absolutely amazing and the sort of the kindness and the generosity of them in just saying, look, you know, what do we call you? What yeah. pronouns do you use? You're still welcome to come to the pub with us. We'd right. love to see all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, football fans get a really bad rap. They do. Um, and I mean, yeah. you know, you see it, Obviously, Hillsborough's in the news a lot at the moment because of the inquest. And you look back at the Sun coverage from 1989 and it's, you know, the most kind of grotesque and appalling and disgusting sort of manifestation of a sort of 1980s uh, attitude that all football fans were scum. Right. Uh, which, you right. know, there were plenty of incidents in the 1980s. I mean, you watch like the Luton Millwall game, for example, a famous kind of riot and you just think, God, who on earth are these people? Right. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of football fans going to watch football kind of 
peacefully and in the right spirit right. every weekend. And, you know, you kind of watch, you look at the sun coverage from 1989 and you know how despicable it looks in hindsight, as I'm sure it did at the time. And it's really hard to sort of square their sort of characterisation of, of the Liverpool fans, for example, with a sort of list of people who died, like many of whom were at school. Sort of demonisation of football fans, you know, on that occasion in particular, obviously had, you know, very real and very grave consequences. Right. A lot of it did come out of just dehumanising people, you know. No, absolutely right. And I mean, and that's been my experiences of people who who love football is you know that they've been lovely people like some of my a lot of my best friends are really into football it's, it's ridiculous <laughs> a lot that of phrase. my best friends yeah is, is that, if, um, yeah that phrase is a ridiculous phrase but it's it's a complicated thing like i i once had a kind of experience on like the tube with like the with with arsenal fans where i was witnessing sort of them be be racist to mm. somebody and you know there was a kind of sense of like you know I, I i wanted to step forward i wanted to help out but i was afraid of the the, the, the scariness of them all and they yeah, weren't no, just men actually there, yeah. there were there were women as well i sort mm. of got off and i had a panic attack and all of that sort of stuff and you know and and, and you know had a, a series of panic attacks but then afterwards i sort of remember as I moved through the rest of the tube system i was afraid of everybody in arsenal shit sure, yeah. and and that like looking back that fear was was wrong yeah. because it was some specific arsenal fans but because of that one moment i suddenly was tarring all arsenal fans with the same brush at that stage i mean and i i've worked in communities where majority of the de- like i've been working with like kids and dads and stuff like in under under fives groups and you know they're arsenal supporters and, yeah. they're, and they're lovely i mean football right? can and be a force good, for good. kind of good and bad i mean you know lots of football clubs do a lot of good community work right. um you know i personally have done a lot of activism around making football you know more kind of lgbt friendly right yeah there are lots of things about football culture that you know deeply kind of frustrate me and seem utterly kind of conservative but i also think in lots of ways you know this is this is a sort of you know it's it's a manifestation of things that exist in wider society right absolutely um, right you know football and you know kind of team sports can sort of create an environment where sort of racism or misogyny or homophobia or whatever flourish i think that's you know it would be absurd to deny that anna crean's recent but night games which i reviewed for the new statesman's about australian rules football and about a rape case in australian rules football but it's very very good at looking at yeah the sort of pack mentality and how that sort of intersects with the economic interests in the kind of game, which, you know, serve to protect perpetrators of violence. Right. Um, and, you know, I think team, you know, something that team sports is, uh, is definitely vulnerable to, or are definitely vulnerable to. But, you know, I think a lot of, uh, you know, football clubs, you know, are good for their communities in lots of ways as well. I think, you know, clubs themselves can do a lot of sterling work. Yeah. Give people something to belong to. I think that's, you know, that's yeah. valuable as well. I mean, it's a, tr- it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a community as, yeah. a, at the end of the day. And, and there's, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of complicated class, like prejudice involved, oh God, involved in the way we think of football fans yeah. as much as, you know, and in the way they behave. As, you, know. you know, the sort of the football rugby kind of contrast, right. this idea that kind of footballers are a bunch of kind of, you know, licentious thugs yeah and rugby players are a bunch of sort of you know upstanding gentlemen it's actually no like the way sort of media reports are covered i mean rugby is you know a very violent sport right you're allowed to be pretty violent to each other so nobody comments on it right. like footballers playing in a, a ma- you know an individual match that's worth millions and millions of pounds kind of shove each other a bit and everybody stays up for a right. week you know and there's some really <laughs> complicated like uh environments uh in universities in rugby clubs as well like which is you know and yeah it, you, you're right there's definitely that kind of class divide line it, between rugby and football most people think of although me growing up in cardiff mm. uh everybody was into rugby more course, than football yeah. in school and they were they weren't they weren't posh but then that's again that, that that's a myth uh, again, rugby fans are, are probably quite diverse in their clubs. Well, exactly, yeah. Too. And, you know, for years I hated rugby and I sort of hated <laughs> it on the grounds that, yeah, like I was just for posh people and, you know, they're a bunch of sadists and yada, yada, yada. And then, you know, I thought, well, no, it's just, you know, this is this is the sort of inverse of how people who hate football kind of right. function. And just the sport doesn't quite grab me on a sort of visceral kind of aesthetic level. And so I sort of focus on the cultural aspects of it that I don't yeah. like, which, you know, isn't really reasonable. So the second question I ask everybody is, what do you do now? Good question, uh, because I've just finished a memoir, which is based on the um, Guardian series, Ideas, Gender, Assignment. 
uh, and I delivered the manuscript. Well, actually, there's a tiny little bit of the manuscript left to do, but I delivered the bulk of the manuscript a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so now I'm just kind of kicking my heels, really, <laughs> um, wondering what to do next. But um, it's been a sort of rocky road, but I guess I'm a sort of writer. I don't know. I mean, I don't even really call myself a journalist anymore because the overwhelming majority of what I've written over the last couple of years has been kind of long-form essays. Uh, and I'm not a journalist in the sense that, you know, we talked about Dawn Foster and the way that Dawn, uh, you know, does a lot of field work and, you know, a lot of kind of researching stories and going out and talking to people right. uh, in a way that I wish a lot more journalists were rather than doing, you know, kind of this very kind of first-person stuff that, I mean, I've done a lot of, but, you know, I'm really kind of sick of comment pieces that, that just draw from the kind of writer's own life. Right. Um, you know, if there's a kind of lack of life experience, and often it's kind of painfully obvious. And I understand that's a lot to do with kind of economics of journalism now, and, you know, how quickly comment pieces have to be turned around, and they're not particularly well paid. So, you know, uh, the sort of investigative work I'm talking about, you know, needs to be well funded. But yes, yeah, so I do a lot of essay writing, really. And the last... Last things have been on things as diverse as sort of Hollis Frampton's kind of avant-garde uh, film Nostalgia from the early 70s, which is online and well worth watching. It's all about his relationship with photography and employs all these sort of interesting distancing devices when he's talking about his own kind of photographic career. You know, I wrote some things for the New Statesman last year on sort of my personal experience of the privatisation of the NHS and what it was like right. to work for the PCTs as they're abolished. Uh, you know, my sort of understanding of the sort of ongoing conflict between radical feminism and trans people but let's not talk any more about that jeez sure. <laughs> <laughs> would have thought everybody's sick of that by now um people are either sick of it or they don't know what we're talking about well to be honest <laughs> the second camp is infinitely preferable right. um you know if you don't know don't look it up but um, yeah God. Um, or, or, you know, my sort of relationship with kind of Twitter and social media. So, I mean, having just complained about people doing kind of first-person writing is almost exclusively what I do. Right. Um, but that's because that's what I'm asked for. Um, you know, I feel as a trans person, sort of, you know, as a woman, member of minority, you know, that's, that's the way sort of culturally positioned, I think. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that's, a, that's, a, yeah, that's a tricky thing. It's like, I mean, um, so the... The website, uh, Writers of Colour Media Diversified, mm-hmm. um, who I follow on Twitter and I read a lot of their articles, um, they've been sort of talking about, you know, are people sharing us when we're talking about things that aren't race? Sure. Like, are you yes, only sharing yeah, our articles when when we're talking about race? So you're sort of like putting all of these journalists into, you're, you've got to talk about race yeah. now, and that's all we'll listen to. We'll listen to you, but only when you're talking about Well, this race. is it, and that comes partly from editors and partly from audiences. Right. Uh, I mean, the... Only time I've ever gone viral, really, was the long piece on radical feminism and, and trans people, right. which just astonished me how well it went down. And, you know, I spent the last kind of couple of years writing about art and literature and film to very little interest, really, most of the time. <laughs> uh, but that's what I wanted to do. But, yeah, what people wanted from me was was that particular subject. Yeah, although there are, um, there are I'm, I'm, I think, you know, there are audiences for your other work. <laughs> like, I've read, I've read stuff that you've written that has not been about trans issues and it's been great. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I think also, and it's probably partly to do with the sort of the way I write, uh, tends to be sort of quite quiet and contemplative, I think. And, you know, it probably attracts that sort of reader. So they're not necessarily the kind of people who are going to make a big kind of... Fuss about it. Yeah, big deal of, right. you know, something I've written. Yeah. I don't aim to provoke in any way, really. It's, you know, very anathema to my sort of style. I frequently feel very, very unsuited to the way journalism is now. Uh, right. That's another reason why I've kind of attracted from it. The way sort of journalism, or sort of comment journalism in particular, blogs, social media and kind of comment sections have all kind of sort of coalesced into one sort of big kind of grey ball. Um, and I mean, I wrote a piece for the New Statesman last summer arguing that, um, you know, that sort of conglomeration of those sort of four four things, sort of writers and audiences you know, one of the effects of them was to sort of squeeze out kind of um, long form and kind of sober investigations of marginal subjects. But then the next day I wrote that long essay and it went viral. So what do I know? But um, <laughs> I, but, but yeah, um, I think the future, I was looking to move away from this sort of first person writing now, I feel kind of utterly drained with it. You know, it's meant giving away an awful lot that I can't get right, back. Right, right. Um, you know, a lot of stuff that actually, you know, maybe I'd rather not have revealed. And there was this sort of tension between sort of feeling the sort of political need to 
put certain things about my own kind of physicality and psychology sort of at the service of sort of you know improving kind of trans representation right uh and you know that balanced against my sort of own emotional well-being right uh, because you know it it made me feel very vulnerable it put me into kind of awkward sort of dialectics with editors who were saying can you make this more personal can you push this further and me saying i've already given away far too much uh and obviously you know it brought a lot of people to me who'd had very similar kind of issues in their lives and you know even without really speaking about it it's hard not to sort of you know take on um you know sort of concerns and you know, feel that, you know, you have a media platform, so you have a sort of responsibility right. to use it in a certain way, but also not to sort of claim to represent anybody else. You just end up walking all these, like, really, really difficult lines. And I've been very burnt out by it, actually. I'm doing it for sort of five years now. Right. And really now I just like to write about, you know, sort of 1960s experimental literature or something. Right. And you've got, um, but you've got a lot a lot to say on those well, exactly, as well. Yeah. I mean, um, you, you know, you've, you've, you've studied, you've studied, like quite a lot of time haven't you I, I believe yeah I did a master's in literature and film at Sussex right. 10 years ago I'm actually I mean hoping to do a PhD it just depend on kind of funding but um may well be going back to academia which seems like a sort of you know more natural home for me at this point actually right. and you know would would study kind of creative writing and wouldn't have any commercial pressure on my writing for several years so right. uh, you know I would be looking to kind of reposition myself you know maybe doing more kind of scripts or, or writing for kind of smaller art presses or something I'm not that comfortable, um, you know, appearing on platforms like the Garzio or the New Statesman, actually. Uh, you know, I was much happier <laughs> standing in a gallery with about 15 people. Uh, you know, I think probably the, the thing I've most kind of enjoyed writing and presenting to an audience, I wrote a sort of manifesto for confessional journalism a couple of years ago. And even I couldn't tell which bits of it were a joke and which bits were serious. Uh, but I read it at the Brixton East Art Gallery, a sort of art salon uh, arranged by my friend Ventico, who's a really great kind of photo artist. I know about 20 people there, and I thought, yeah, this is about right. <laughs> right. No, I know, yeah, I, I kind of get what you mean. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always scared of, of platforms as much as I sort of, like, work towards mm. getting them because of, yeah, because of all of these kinds of issues, really. And I, I, I do quite a lot of confessional stuff and, uh, you know, with with all different you know with a completely different set of like circumstances or whatever but but i mean you know that stuff is a worry like it does make me worried to go into that stuff even as it liberates me in some mm. ways to reveal it but i don't think that's the same for for, for every you're too everybody close to your well. audiences now i think in that type of journalism i think through comment sections through twitter and social media I think you are too close to your audiences. Right. I mean, Lars Iyer, who I just think is wonderful, I love his novels so much, um, he wrote this brilliant manifesto for The White Review in, I think, 2011. And it was about... It was largely about this, really, the sort of closest to the sort of writer in the audience. And, you know, a lot of good writing comes from, yeah, some sort of level of detachment, really, I think. And, right. uh, you know, he talks about writers sort of moving down from the sort of mountains to the cities and then sort of onto social media and right. things. And, yeah, I, I don't know how healthy these things are, really. You know, I'm sort of largely withdrawn from Twitter over the last couple of years. And it's right. sort of, you know, it's, it's something that struck me lately how many of the kind of writers and, you know, even kind of comedians and people that I like the most just either aren't on it or aren't particularly active on it. Right. Or use it in some sort of conceptual way that, you know, it doesn't sort of go for that sort of levelling out of reader and writer that these things were sort of designed to do. I just don't think it's healthy, and I, you know, in particular with sort of Twitter, I can't think of anything worse for a writer than to be able to measure not just your sort of audience as a whole, but your audience for each individual thing that you write right. down to the last number. It's it's really unhealthy. It's, right. it's And, you know, it's particularly if you, you know, like me, I mean, what I try and do with with all of my writing really is sort of shed light on sort of marginalized kind of works or experiences or whatever and you know something things like twitter and facebook you know they don't reward that for the most part uh, you know it's the odd exception but um you know it's one thing to sort of think that you're putting stuff out and nobody's reading it which was what i used to do with uh, i used to write for a magazine called film waves 10 years ago yeah uh, which was sort of arts council funded kind of artists and avant-garde film magazine they lost its funding in 2008 closed down and as a friend of mine put it brilliantly recently i was explaining film waves to him and he said that you know an arts council funded avant-garde film magazine it just sounds as sort of far away as the national coal board or something <laughs> now really you know it's, it's another yeah. age but um you know i used to write for film waves and i'd write on you know sort of austrian avant-garde filmmakers like kind of peter chikaski or gustav deutsch which is what i wish i was still doing but um <laughs> you know at the time i thought oh, no one's reading um and you know people were reading but um not that many 
but it's one thing to sort of suspect that and it's another thing to be kind of starkly told it by you know piece of software right <laughs> every so, time you publish anything because right. i mean that, yeah and that's the, the new reality for journalists is, is it's all about numbers it's all about clicks it really is and i mean likes and stuff yeah like and you know i mean i had a particularly dispiriting moment i think a year or two ago i was applying for a job and i was using the blog i have on the new statesman site uh, yeah, I was applying for a job with a, like an arts magazine. And so I was going through the New Statesman site. And, you know, to be fair, like what they would have wanted in this job was, you know, the more kind of obscure kind of arts end of stuff that I do. So I was clicking. So basically to make my CV, I was hyperlinking to the pieces because, you know, that's as modern as I can make myself look <laughs> with, with technology. But right. I was linking to all the pieces. and I was clicking on, you know, I was going through my archive and clicking on things. And, uh, you know, I clicked on a, a piece I wrote about the Croatian performance artist, Sanja Vekovic, who I like an awful lot. Um, and I linked to that and then I clicked somewhere else and it, it came up with like Juliet Jake's Most Read. And at the top was this sort of, you know, six month old piece on, on Sanja Vekovic. And I thought, oh, wow, there's been a sudden spike in people reading my piece on Vekovic. That's great. And I thought, no, Juliet, what's happened here is there are so few people reading this. So you're the <laughs> than yeah. me clicking on it. <laughs> Right. Uh, which, which you know, um, nobody needs to be told that by something as uncaring as, you know, Mozilla Firefox. Like, right. Um, and Yeah, and th- that's the thing. It's hard not to have, like, not to let those kind of things bother you. They like, chip away. Yeah. They really do. I mean, like, um, it's just been like, last week was the 200th episode sort of season of, if you like, I did five episodes in a week mm. uh, to celebrate of this show and like you know I spent all I was spending like the whole week basically tweeting out it was a stupid idea like in advance I was like I'm going to tweet out every one of these 200 right. episodes which sounds great mm. but then you actually do it and that's a lot of admin yeah, it is. Um, yeah. so I was sort of doing that and it was a thankless task and I'll never do it again <laughs> but but the thing was you know because I was spending all that time focusing mm. on it I was just aware of how many people were if exactly. any of them were being retweeted if they weren't and that it became like more dispiriting as it went on I just bet, be- yeah just because of the fact that I and and I then I caught myself. I was like, why am I, why am I caring? Why am I getting personally aggrieved with someone for not retweeting it? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's like you know, but because I was just you know, you, you just get into that mindset. And well, it must be it. like that a hundred times. Well, yeah. Either. I mean, it's really hard to not be sort of led by by the numbers. Really hard. Um, and there are you know, I I don't know how much I should talk about them, but there are one or two um, reasonably high profile jobs that I've been sounded out about, you know, in the last sort of six months or so that I've turned down because they would require me to just sort of embrace this sort of mindset. Right. And it would just kill the kind of writing I want to do. I mean, all the writers I kind of read at university, or you know, all the people I kind of a lot of the people that were closest to my heart were people who were sort of very obscure and you know that's not necessarily a willful thing I'm sure people like kind of Anne Quinn or particularly B.S. Johnson or the Argentinian dramatist Copi or whoever I'm sure they would have liked more people to read their work but they weren't going to bend their work around to the aim of getting people to read it and I'm not prepared to do the same thing with my journalism either Um, and if it's a choice between taking a sort of, you know, a reasonably well-paid job in journalism and embracing this sort of mindset of just sort of chasing the clicks or, you know, continuing to work in a fairly dull job and, you know, writing on the side, I'll take the dull job, you know. Yeah, over that. I was going to say every day of the week, <laughs> any more than three days a week would be a problem. But, um, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, actually at the moment, I am sort of just about sort of scraping by on, on kind of writing because I've just done this book, so book advance and, you know other bits of money that crop up here and there but you know if you can you know get two or three kind of long essays commissioned a month that's sort of just about a living if you're kind of careful right and I'd much rather do that yeah I mean that's that sounds like to me that sounds like a good living I mean the thing is is that's the thing if you're doing basically things that you you enjoy to doing and you're getting enough to exist yeah then that's fine Um, you know there's loads of people who aren't getting enough to exist and they've got they've got terrible problems and then there's a load of people who who have got so much that they and then they lose all their time because they're still carrying on and on and on well this is it I mean if you want to sort of make a living out of comment journalism now you know unless you actually manage to get a kind of staff job somewhere the amount you have to write is just, it will destroy you. I mean, you'd need to write, really, you'd need to write sort of three comment is free pieces a week, for example, right. to get by. Right. And yeah, you know, yeah. no one's got that much to say. Well, yeah, and they won't um, commission you for that many. Exactly, yeah, and readers will get sick of you. I mean, right. you know, you look at people like sort of, well, I don't need to name names, but, you know, there are certain kind of young 
comment journalists are largely kind of women and they're sort of positioned in a certain way you know the commissioners will come in very quickly it's kind of rapid response to a sort of a news issue that nobody's really had a lot of time to sit and really process you'll get asked to write something very quickly you know turn it around within a couple of hours you know it will get given some sort of clickbaity headline and then just sort of put on twitter with your name kind of tagged into right. and then you've just got to deal with how people respond well, to the it. headlines and, uh, in themselves are a, a, a tricky thing to be grasping as journalists i think because well, exactly, like, yeah. so many articles because they put a much more provocative headline yeah. than the actual thing and i find this when i share i share you know i share articles all the time on facebook like and like you know like people do and and i find that i'm so often having arguments with my friends not about the content <laughs> of the article but about the headline yeah. of the article and I'm like no obviously I don't agree with the headline mm. but maybe if you read the article well, you'd this see is why it. I and, agree with you that. know maybe you know <laughs> as a, as a writer you know if you're sort of reasonably high profile you can sort of play play that I didn't write the headline card once or twice you can't do it a lot no uh because you know the subs kind of understandably get upset if you you know right. just slag them off in public yeah, yeah, yeah. which you know yeah i don't like being slagged off in public I get, so, yeah know. i get why they would be uh, yeah um and you know they're told by people higher up to you know make this stuff sell right so you know you can't sort of begrudge them either but yeah this is the whole sort of dynamics of journalism and how it sort of intersects with the internet and particularly with social media and with the you know sort of perilous finances you know, all of that served to kind of burn me out, and I'm pretty right. sure I'm not the only one. You know, no, yeah, um, I, I think you, yeah, I think I know of other people who I've talked to who are in a similar similar situation to you. I don't know. Do you think that there's so we've we've been talking, and I I kind of agree with a lot of this critique of like the the, the problems that the mainstream media have now with this relationship between them and social media and all of these other things, um, and and how that kind of is a problem for for certain kinds of writers who would be doing certain kinds of work but of course I think there is the other side of that that there are new kinds of writing or new kinds of journalism that are springing out to kind of almost to counterbalance some oh of the God, terribleness I mean, of uh, you know it's a lot easier for culture. for people like me to get into it in the first place right. so it's harder to sustain a living right. but it's a lot easier for people to break in there is a much more diverse range of voices now right uh, I think, and it's still not perfect, but you know, you can you feel there might be a trajectory towards something that's you know far better than what I grew up with, you know, in the nineties, just before the internet. Yeah, and yeah, you know, actually, I think people's sort of pessimism, including my own, about the future of long form writing, hasn't necessarily been that well founded. I think the right. Guardian and the New Statesman, for example, are moving towards commissioning more long form work, and I think they should do that. I think there should be less opinion. Hugh Lemmy, uh, who's one of the best things on Twitter, he's right. spits and productive. I'd agree with that. Um, but he was talking about how, you know, he thought that in the middle of the last decade, newspapers in particular might have made a mistake relying so heavily on opinion because, you know, if it's just pure opinion, what's to make one person's opinion more worthy than another's? If you're funding kind of long-form or investigative work, then, you know, you're actually paying for a sort of a set of skills that, you know, not everybody has. Uh, something you can kind of invest in, whereas, you know, opinion doesn't really work like that. And I think also if people do a lot of opinion journalism, that can kind of age quite quickly. Your perspective can get quite stale. Yeah, especially given, as I've said, the amount that you're sort of expected to write now or that you need to write. Yeah. And, you know, I think opinion journalism can be a really good platform into other things for people. But, um, you know, I don't think that's a position you can maintain for that long. But, yeah, I think there are there are lots of possibilities kind of open now if you're willing to... You know, if you've got the sort of staying power or the privilege to to do a lot of work for free or not much money, right? And that's one of the biggest problems in journalism, which is, is yeah, particularly frustrating for a minority position because you know, in some senses, it's a bit easier for for people who are traditionally marginalised to kind of break in. But obviously, those people, you know, less privileged, are going to find it harder to to work for for less money or to do kind of internships or any of the other things you sort of need to do to get in now. Right. Uh, I mean, I did the, you know, I got in through the kind of Guardian series I did, the overwhelming majority of which was written around a full-time job, you know. Right, Um, yeah, right. Or on benefits. Right, and that's not an easy, 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 easy thing to do. No, exactly. To write around a full-time job, although I guess that's that's what novelists generally have to do. Well, exactly, I mean, it is like poetry now, I think, you know. Or, yeah, novelists at best, you know. (laughs) Amounts of money involved are so small that, that, yeah, it's, you know, nearly 
nearly every comment writer I know has some sort of day job. Yeah. You ask most kind of journalists now, especially like newer people, and they'll say that most of their money comes from public speaking. And if right. you're not that inclined towards doing that, and I, you know, I have a very sort of awkward relationship with it, there's aspects of it I enjoy. But I mean, it's definitely something I sort of just try and keep to the sort of level of, you know, if I do this, then I can fund the kind of writing I want to do for X number of days, you know, rather than kind of embracing public speaking. But, you know, if you wanted to be one of these sort of Pynchon or Salinger type writers who, you know, is completely withdrawn, right. forget it, like you'll stuff. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's an exciting time for writers who are naturally, you know, interact. There's, you know, there's yeah. a lot of interactivity possibilities within mm. writing now. There's ex- sort of excitingness of sort of collective writing as well. Like I think sometimes we we, and I, there are issues around appropriation. So th- th- there are legitimate critiques to be made but sometimes when we think of like buzzfeed or something like where they compile lots of tweets or whatever yeah yeah like i think you know in a way that's great Mm. that's you know it's not great when it's people being exploited when those tweets are putting up there or whatever but the idea of a piece being written by lots of people is is exciting Mm. and that's not to say i'm not like you know i like authored pieces as well i like you know I think most of us want a whole fruit fruit bowl of Well, well absolutely, right? yeah. I mean, you know, multiple authors and multiple voices, yeah, it's you know, potentially very interesting. Um, but it's still the same people controlling that. I think well, exactly. I mean, you know, BuzzFeed in particular, there's lots of kind of grey area about how it's funded. Right. Because uh, they do a lot of kind of sponsored content. Uh, and so you'll see something like, you know, there's a BuzzFeed template that they use. And then you'll see like a post by like the DCLG, the government's housing department, entitled, what was it, is your landlord actually awesome? And there's sort of a 13 point list or something of reasons why your landlord who charges you like £700 for a, you know, room in Cambridge Heath that's barely big enough to get a bed and a microwave in, uh, you know, is actually brilliant and not, you know, kind of exploitative like you thought. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is, I think it's very confusing for consumers of news. And, uh, you know, I count myself as one, one of those confused people because um, so many of these publications will have brilliant important articles that change the way you see the world next to something as questionable as as, as something praising or just completely in name right um, right which you know buzzfeed is also right. often quite guilty of yeah right. so i mean i i don't um, i mean i i i there's i've written i've written a comment as three piece for the guardian sure. and, I, and then the, there's lots of guardian writers including yourself when you wrote for the guardian who i love um but that doesn't mean that i can trust that organization no and, and, and i, I mean, feel like that about all, all well, organizations. Exactly, and, and it's not to do with even the people who are in you know none of the editors necessarily like it's a systematic issue it's yeah not, it's not a person and thing. sort of drawing a line with this stuff is really difficult i mean you know all the publications i've written for you know on some level i've written for them because i want to kind of challenge transphobia within them and you know the sort of nature of that content you know kind of ebbs and flows and you end up sort of you know having to take a sort of relativist approach to it because yeah if you took an absolutist approach you wouldn't be able to write for anyone or work anywhere right. actually I under mean, capitalism we're all exactly you know it's the adorno <laughs> thing isn't right. it you know how do you live a good life in a bad one and it's a life that's getting progressively worse because the government are making it harder and harder for people on the left to you know work anywhere that they they feel they can sort of be a part of Right. With any sort of integrity. I mean, you know, I worked for the NHS from 2008 to 14. Uh, and when I started working at the NHS, I thought, yeah, I feel, you know, relatively, you know, lots of things about the primary care trust culture I wasn't happy about then. So prevalent of management consultants and level of involvement of kind of private companies at that point. But obviously since 2010, it's got much, much worse mm-hmm. to the point where I thought I can't. I can't do this with a clear conscience any more than I can write for, you know, sort of mainstream media organisation. Right. And the rule I have for myself is no male, no Murdoch. But even that feels, you know, really arbitrary. And right. I want to write for the TLS. So, you know, I don't know. You know, even that probably doesn't hold, really. No, it's just, it's, I mean, it, you know, there is no way to be wholly ethical and be, no, absolutely. And be, be living, you know, probably anywhere in the world, but certainly in this country. And so. then even, even more with journalism, you're compromised not just by that sort of ownership structure working in, but just by dint of it being a kind of industry where you get to know people Mm. and you know there have been plenty of occasions where sort of somebody I know and personally like has said something on Twitter or written something that you know I don't really feel able to defend and lots of people are angry about and uh, yeah I'm I'm sure that you know my 
response to it is is thoroughly compromised by the fact that I've met these people. I'm likely to see them again. And, and you know, you have to be careful about who you kind of criticise. I mean, that's another reason why increasingly things like kind of short fiction and drama are appealing to me. Because right. I think actually you can be a lot more truthful right. when you invent. Right, absolutely. Um, because with journalism, you are you are beholden to the facts, and and yeah, you're sort of placed within the industry. Whereas with art, you know, as long as you sort of created one big lie, I think you can be much more truthful. Well, yeah, it. but also arts arts truths, isn't it? Like yeah, the, the, completely. It's everybody brings a different truth to it, and then yeah. and it's like the, the, that's one of the, the the glorious things about art is you can make something that says a few different things. Well, that's like it. That makes it make makes speaks to the complexity of human like, all of existence. the most sincere things that have ever been written have been fiction well, yeah I mean you know absolute statements always scare me but that's probably true like <laughs> <laughs> I mean you know it's a truth at least it's I mean, my own absolute statement about my own writing right. if it was any about anyone else or anything right, else right, then, right. then I would run a mile from well, I mean, from I mean, that you know, sort of thing, but yeah, but but you, you know, it's it's you know, when you start talking about truth, you end up in you know, what is truth well, exactly, territory, and yeah. that's but, always you know, obviously, fiction. I think you know, you can't really explore that in journalism either, right? Uh, fiction and drama, whatever, you know, it has much more interesting places to investigate that. I think. Did you write fiction first and then do journalism and then yeah. going back? To yeah, it? I mean, I started off as a little playwright and short story writer oh, right. uh, with so, very limited success. I've been writing more short fiction over the last kind of... I mean, basically, you know, the plan was always to do journalism. Journalism was only ever plan B for me. And the plan was to do kind of drama, short fiction, etc. But I sort of knew that my interests and my style of writing would be too marginal to hope to make a living. I mean, you know, very few people make a living out of fiction and drama right. anyway. Yeah. So, you know, in 2002, <laughs> when I was 20, I thought, well, you know, I sort of looked at trying to become a journalist... To fund that, and I didn't expect to make a lot of money from journalism for similar reasons. You know, my interests in kind of film and literature and art and stuff were, were kind of weird and obscure. But in 2002, you know, it looked kind of plausible to be able to write, you know, sort of five or, well, you know, maybe three or four things a month and sort of scrape together just enough money to get by each month and have right. some time to do these other things. And of course, by the time I actually broke into mainstream journalism properly in 2010 after years of writing for people like Filmwaves, yeah, I found the sort of stuff I've been talking about, the sheer amount of writing you have to do. And also this sort of push and pull of, yeah, as I was talking about earlier, having this platform, being a sort of trans writer with that platform and feeling, well, actually, there are political needs that I need to try and address right. through this sort of writing. And, you know, just, just over the last kind of couple of years, I thought, no, you know, the only path to sort of happiness or sanity is to just make sure I keep doing the kind of writing that I actually want to do. Yeah. Uh, and so I've been writing a lot more short fiction and, you know, sometimes that's about trans stuff. Often it's a response to a work of art. Sometimes it's about football. It's all covered the same sort of themes as I have in my journalism. I started off doing plays as well, I mean, and, and, and writing fiction. And I still hope to do more of that and do some of that but I've I've found myself kind of ending up down this line of doing more true storytelling and doing more personal uh, stuff which I never expected to I never thought I was interested enough for a story Mm. but it's turned out the opposite way than I expected it's it's funny how it goes in the in the arts though because you, you you go right here's my plan b and plan b is just as hard yeah, as plan absolutely. a like like you know I'm like you know making a podcast I guess is is one of my plan b's sure. and you know there's a there's, there's loads and loads of work you know within that and <laughs> well, that exactly. takes up time that I could be doing writing completely you know, so. and you know it took me a long time to sort of accept that journalism wasn't going to support me in the way that it might have done 20 years earlier right and then also yeah like I said I just kind of count my blessings say well 20 years ago you wouldn't have been able to be a journalist and trans because the kind of people controlling what got published and where you know had much more of a stranglehold on it It was like you know radical feminist kind of anti-trans people really on the sort of left and you know would have been a lot more difficult so you know there's it's not sort of unquestionably kind of good or bad Right. change but I mean what I particularly like about writing short fiction is that you know when I do a piece of journalism I've generally got a fairly good idea where it's going, what my argument's going to be, what my take on it's going to be, and of course you have to just tell everyone what you think. I mean, that's how journalism works. What I really like about fiction and drama in particular, you you sort of, you pick a story, you set up a set of circumstances, and you don't know what's going to happen. I, I right. think one of my favourite things I've ever written was a short story I published at Birthra last year. Uh, it's called Reflections on Villaplon, and it's all about uh, it's a true story. I use this tactic quite a lot in fiction writing, which is I take a true story or a piece of art and sort of insert a second person into that story of my invention to sort of make the story 
go where I want it to. And so I sort of decided to tell a story from a point of view of somebody who'd grown up watching this guy, Alex Villaplon, who was the first ever captain of France at the World Cup, first ever World Cup match in 1930. Great amateur footballer in, in France, or supposedly amateur, and was actually getting paid a fortune. It's incredibly, the whole system, amateur system was incredibly corrupt. And, you know, from there, you know, to sort of supplement his income further, he fixed matches and then fixed horse races and he got caught doing all of this, got sent to prison. It was the end of his career. And then when the Nazis occupied Paris and sort of just imposed this sort of criminal society on the whole of France, but through the sort of Parisian black market, you know, the sort of criminals had a sort of head start, really. And um, Villaplon ended up becoming one of the heads of the French Gestapo because the French Gestapo just basically grew out of this sort of criminal racket. Right. A guy called Henri Lafont, who was um, released from prison and then, you know, trapped down the head of the Belgian resistance in order to sort of impress the sort of old Prussian elements of the Nazi party. And so they said, all right, you just get whoever you want out of prison and you can just run France. And Villaplon was one of them. So Villaplon ended up being executed as one of the worst traitors in the history of France. Um, And, you know, obviously, you know, this to me sort of takes us back where we started, I guess, posed some really interesting questions about the sort of nature of loyalty and and teamwork and, you know, the corruption of of those sorts of ideals by money. But I sort of didn't know where that story was going to go when I started writing it. And it felt kind of dangerous because I thought, well, am I going to end up sort of taking such a moral position that I sort of defend this guy who sort of ended up committing, you know, serious war crimes on the part of the Nazi party? I don't think I did, but what I was trying to sort of drive at was that the sort of the corruption in the French Republic and this sort of, you know, very hypocritical, you know, parading of these apparently sort of gentlemanly ideals of sort of amateurism and comradeship and everything where actually what was going on was that huge companies owned all the football clubs and and gave all the sort of leading players these sort of pretend jobs in their factories and actually put them on huge salaries and they were professional and that actually basically everyone was making a fortune out of football except the players because they weren't legally allowed to and they were the ones with the skill right um you know i found Very that familiar yeah framework yeah exactly yeah. and i found that really interesting and you know there's a sort of scene where the narrator actually well, Villaplane's going to kill him. And the narrator says, look, I used to watch you at the Stade de Colomb in Paris. And they sit down and have a conversation. And Villaplane sort of explains, you know, how everyone in football did really well except him. And, you know, talks to the narrator about the narrator's naivety and sort of, you know, believing in this sort of amateur ideal and how absurd it is. Uh, and, you know, Villaplane sort of positioning that as the thing that's turned him into this sort of, you know, this guy who's just out for all he can get. And, you know, he sees it as perfectly reasonable because he thinks he's just been ripped off all his life. And, you know, towards the end of the, the story, um, you know, you have to kind of question that, give him more of what you learn about his behaviour. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously I, you know, read about that story and just found it absolutely fascinating. And, and you know, just had to write something. It just took me four years to write that story of, wow. of you know, learning about this and basically being sort of ready to like fashion it into some sort of narrative. And I might turn it into a novel, actually, right. I and mean, that might... Probably not my next project, because I think, you know, in order to turn a sort of 6,000-word story into sort of 80,000-word novel, my French would need to be a lot better, and I'd have to go to France and do some kind of archive yeah, research right. and stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that sort of story is a fascinating story, and there's several other real-life stories that I've, I've taken a similar sort of technique with. It's got a kind of history element to it as well. Is, was that the... Was you, was I was a history was, graduate, right. yeah. So, Absolutely. So and so you've sort of you've studied history and then you've studied literary criticism, film, yeah. including film. Yeah. Mm. I mean, those those things go together really well. To, well, they're all linked to create by, the kind of stories you're talking about. Yeah, right? I mean, they're all about narratives, really. Right. They're all about um, sort of interpretations of events, and you know, sort of critical theory and philosophy can sort of underpin all of those studies as well. And actually that was the sort of unifying thing was sort of interest in intellectual history that ran from sort of Rousseau right through to kind of Foucault and Derrida and sort of French, the post-structuralist lot, Sikhsu and, and then even, you know, further on sort of Judith Butler and and people like that. Um, philosophical kind of framework that sits, you know, I like to think sits around everything I do, although I'd much rather take a sort of creative kind of approach to that than just a sort of straight down the line theoretical one. Although, I mean, they're very hard things to separate as well. Right, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, like separating all of these things out is is never it's it's not really possible. Yeah, you know, you can't you can't separate philosophy from politics, from personal, from political. You know, all of oh these god, things. absolutely. I mean, yeah, yeah. everything's political. So, right, you know, as Skunk and Well, absolutely. Yes, my uh, <laughs> my flatmate used to play that to me quite a lot. Um, I was like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> 
but it is, you know, um, a very funny argument with a uh, someone I met who, who you know, is, is quite hostile to to sort of left wing perspectives on things, really. And I was sort of trying to tell him, look, everything is political, and he he really took against that. And uh, you know, had this sort of me and a friend. I had a Twitter argument with him for days, where we were saying, "Look, everything is political." And I remember him replying, "Look, my friend and I sat in a cafe talking about Dickens. How is that political?" And we were like, oh "Talking God. about Dickens, and there's no politics involved. That's yeah, sort of almost impressive." Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, in, in, impossible. Yeah, but but also, I mean, you know, they're sitting in a cafe. They've they've, they've killed it already. Exactly. They, you know, yeah. they, they they exist. Yeah, so completely. Course, you know what? And you know, we bombarded him with questions, and we're like, "Look, what cafe are you in? What have you bought? Where's it made? Why have you bought it? How much right. did it cost?" Why are you talking about Dickens? Which Dickens? What yeah. happens in the plot? You know, I think probably not unreasonably he just got fed up and sort of walked away from the conversation at that point. But yeah. I'd prove my point. So. Well, I think the thing is about the word politics, like everybody sees the word politics and they just think parliamentary system. Exactly. And then they go, Very well, conservative. I'm, you know, it's not even think, like, it, yeah, but it's not even just conservative people. I think it's like there's a lot of people who they wouldn't necessarily say they're left or they're right. They would yeah. kind of be find both of those phrases tiresome and 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 i think like there's a lot of people who yeah who are like they think that they don't care about politics because they can only see it through that through how they've been taught politics are by the political class well this is it and you know obviously the say the transgender journey series i did for the guardian which on first glance is a sort of you know very first person very kind of individualistic uh you know just this is my journey kind of thing and that was how i was told to frame it and of course i used to play a game with the guardian didn't tell them i was playing it which made it easier to win but i called it theoretical buckaroo and the idea was like you put as much kind of politics and sort of social history and yeah cultural criticism into the pieces as you can before the editor asks you for a rewrite i only lost twice i did like 30 pieces and only lost twice so you know sort of an advantage of writing about a subject that the people who are commissioning it didn't really understand or know about because you know they put a couple of them online people seemed to like it they were like all right you seem to know what you're doing just get on with it but you know obviously a lot of people saw that as being not very political but i ended up you know giving kind of lectures that would last like more than an hour about all the sort of politics around it and what led me to do it and you know, my apprehension of the sort of media and how it functioned and what it was doing to trans people. Yeah, I mean, there yeah. are many, many ways of polit- having political acts. You know, you've talked a lot about your your, your point of view on opinion pieces, and mm. I kind of agree with you uh, about opinion pieces, but I think first-person experience pieces, yeah. I'm, I'm really down for. I them. think they work better when they deal with specific experiences or specific ways of being and I think partly for the writers that's the case because I mean you look at someone like Liz Jones who just writes about her life and you know she talks a lot about you know how unhealthy it is and it doesn't look particularly healthy and you know you're constantly mining every aspect of your life for content yeah Um, whereas for me you know it only kind of complicated certain experiences but actually I found it very difficult because you know I'd sort of experienced transphobia and you know this is terrible but there'd be like a tiny part of me I think oh I hope this gets worse so I've got better copy oh, yeah, uh, which is right. just awful but on the other hand yeah it does sort of shine a light on a certain experience and you know humanise it in a way that sort of a piece about more kind of high politics around right. our kind of lives wouldn't necessarily do right. um, and then of course you know hopefully you open the door for people to be more interested in the politics around it right and you um, have to you make these comments like I mean I like I say like the the piece I wrote for comment is free that was about me like so I worked for the council and I my job sort of got cut mm. and I wrote this piece about it but the the first thing I did was I was experiencing it so I was writing these long Facebook posts that were getting shared a lot and that's when I was like oh hang on this might be of more interest yeah. to other people and I was trying to talk about like so the first piece I wrote and I, I still prefer it to the comment is free piece mm. and it's still available online if people want to check it out I guess but it's uh it was about the process of the community saying goodbye to me. I was the storyteller. Um, So the kids and the parents and the communities and from lots of different backgrounds, lots of different class backgrounds, the people who were sad that I was going and for lots of different reasons. But I sort of just wanted to show the loss of my role through the uh, thank you cards and the, the, the outpourings of like love that I'd experienced. And I thought that was an interesting way of talking about what those communities are going to be losing and what I'm losing too but I I don't I'm not 
I'm not as relevant for the story because for me it was a day job I probably would have moved on to something else whereas that role should always have someone mm. filling it so, so for me it was about the role rather yeah. than me but but putting all that stuff together and then sort of it got shared loads and loads by people on 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 Twitter which is a rarity for me um and then because of that that gave me a an opportunity to pitch it to the Guardian in a different exactly. way yeah and then because of that like then they said that's great rewrite it as a comment piece mm. with an argument you know and all of that stuff and for me that's the funny thing like what you were talking about with fiction I think journalism can also achieve that but 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 it's not allowed to sometimes so I felt yeah. like the original piece was kind of like you know you could read it different ways you could take your own meaning from mm. it but then if I make it into the standard Guardian article yeah then people can't get those complexities, them, yeah. those ambiguities. Well, it's too sure. I mean, right. for one thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. one, one thing I've always right. strove to do in journalism is allow myself a lot of space. When I was 21, I saw the Noam Chomsky documentary, Manufacturing Consent, and it made a really big impression on me. Uh, but one of the things he said is, you know, one of the ways that democracy, democratic, inverse commas, media, uh, functions to sort of keep out ideas that it doesn't like is not to kind of sense them because that gives them a lot more power right. but you invite them in but you give them such limited space that anything that goes against the sort of received wisdom just sounds like it comes from another planet and you know for every, for example with kind of immigration um you know you get this barrage of anti-immigration stuff from the right-wing press and the right-wing parties um you know all the time and, you know, the argument you get to counter it a bit is that, oh, they bring things to us culturally. But, you know, so, you know as if the sole purpose of immigration is that, you know, right. we get nicer restaurants or something. Yeah. But, we'll let them in if they give us something, yeah, which is but, not a nice... Know, yeah, and, you know, any <laughs> other kind of counter-argument to that, you know, just sounds like it comes from another planet because it's just not given any airtime. So if anybody expresses it, you know, in the sort of two minutes that you'll get on, like, the BBC Politics show or Question Time or something, you know, it's just not really allowed to breathe. Right. Uh, and, you know, so what I tried to do with journalism was, you know, obviously with the Guardian thing was, you know, I used to see a lot of kind of one-off transition articles that were sympathetic, but they were just so cliched because there wasn't the space to get beyond the kind of I was born in the right. wrong body and, you know, that sort of framing, that sort of conundrum framing of, you right. know, I had a nice job and kids and house and suburbs are worried I'd lose the ball. And I thought, well, maybe there's different ways of reflecting this reality, but in order to get past that you needed that sort of space and that's one thing the internet is really good for just the sheer unlimited amount of space right the compromise you have to get is you have to be prepared to do a lot of writing for not very much money but you know if you can find an arrangement that works for that which the transgender journey thing kind of did yeah um then you can you can do something with it and actually sort of towards the end of the series i got to do things that were sort of that felt quite kind of poetic and ruminative Mm. i mean i wrote one of my favorite pieces in it was um I used to give all the pieces kind of one word title, uh, which, you know, obviously the subs put a longer title on. But I quite like the fact that, you know, it was kind of like one childhood, two transgender, three transition, four family, you know, that kind of thing. And I gave them one called Masculinity, which was uh, all about uh, the second game I went to uh, as a woman, so to speak, which is away at Millwall, which, you know, have a certain reputation uh, but all about my relationship with sort of masculinity and like how much of the sort of male persona I'd created partly as a sort of self-protection mechanism, right. how much of that I wanted to sort of retain, you know, after coming out and how I was sort of handling that. And yeah, this piece was, you know, it wasn't a sort of conventional argument with a sort of opening, middle and kind of conclusion uh, because, you know, it's part of a much wider kind of series. And it was received with sort of naked contempt, really, from a lot of the commenters, especially people who, you know, hadn't read the rest of the series. Right. Especially because the Guardian sports section kind of tweeted it, so it took it to a sort of audience wow. that wouldn't normally have read it. Right. Like, huge following they have on Twitter, several million people, I think. So, you know, it was a real, you know, very real hostility in the kind of comments section. But largely because I was just like, look, this doesn't really make sense. And, you know, some of the comments said, look, I think if you haven't read the rest of this, then it doesn't doesn't make sense but you know being a part of that much wider space let me do something you know quite I think interesting with that sort of format right that I haven't been able to do a lot elsewhere until I sort of got to the point where I got more established and you know that sort of was my style of writing yeah and one of the more interesting pieces I think I've done recently and you talk about this sort of collaborative nature of writing online and how things can grow out of sort of social media I did a piece for the states from a couple of years ago I think it was called something like travels of a transsexual football fan and I'd gone to watch Norwich play against uh, West Ham 
And on the train home, I got separated from all my Norwich friends who kind of know me and, you know, they're all kind of cool. And I ended up in a carriage where I was the only Norwich fan with a bunch of West Ham fans. Right. And I wasn't wearing colours, but I had my Norwich scarf in my bag. And I ended up sat with, like, these three sort of, you know, 20 or 30-something blokes who supported West Ham. And one of them said to me, are you happy? You're sad. And I was like, sorry. I was trying to read a book. I'm just trying to keep myself to myself. And he twigged up in at the football. So you're happy or sad? And I was like, oh, right, I'm a Norwich fan. I'm happy. And ended up for about an hour or an hour and a half, like having to have a conversation with these three guys about football and about West Ham and Norwich and stuff. And, you know, all these anxieties. Am I passing as someone who was born female or am I not? Um, you know, is my tone of voice right? If I sound too authoritative about football, that's a very kind of classically male position. And they were, you know, asking me who my favourite ever West Ham player was. And I thought, well, if I name someone quite obscure, then I probably get kudos with them for knowing about their club. And that probably protects me. But, you know, if I sort of admit to knowing who I don't know, um, Slaven Bielic is or something, then it probably sounds a bit too over-immersed in it. Um, and it was it was sort of all these, you know, every question sort of involved walking some sort of really difficult line. Yeah. And this whole journey, I mean, actually, it was fine. At the end, they invited me to go out with them. And I was like, no, you're all right. Uh, but they were nice guys, yeah. really. I had no problem with them, certainly. And my friend Rachel was, you know, East End, kind of born and raised, just said they're chatting you up. But at the end, I was just absolutely exhausted because the whole thing was just so stressful. But mm. I sort of wrote this up as a long, yeah, long Facebook status, just said, I don't know what to make of this, and got a load of responses to it. And then just turned it into something for the statesman, or gave it a different kind of top and tail, rewrote it a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, nicer conclusion. And, 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 you know, it worked very nicely as a sort of blog post, and people kind of read it and, you know, seemed to be kind of interested in it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there are lots of possibilities for the internet as well, you know. I mean, well, I think... Well, I think long form is an interesting thing. Like, one of the things that you've been consistently talking about, I think, throughout this conversation is kind of attraction to longer mm. sort of pieces. And, I mean, that's something, as, as someone who, who puts together this hour-long podcast I have a lot of conversations about long form with people there is a large audience for long form audio but there's also a lot of people who don't think that they would ever sit down and listen for an hour to anything and so they they can take personal offense that I'm putting it out (laughs) even though they don't have to listen to it um but I think that the the, it's important like it's important the long formness of this of this of this show because you wouldn't get any idea of what it's like to be with I, I could I could edit this conversation down to the juiciest bits right mm. you know some people would prefer that or whatever but you don't get like the sense of, of, of a journey of the different sort of places we go to in, in that journey how well, we exactly. interact as two people you don't get any of those sort of things I think you, you see so much more from a long form conversation uh, than you this do from a shortly edited piece. you sort of wonder some of the people who sort of profess to be hostile to, to long form stuff and actually probably better wrap up here because I've got to go and meet a friend right in town. exactly but, um, it's about the right time uh, I think you know sort of closing thing as sort of most amusing example of this sort of culture clash and you know it comes it came just before I sort of closed down my Twitter account which I'll probably reopen at some point but I'm so sick of Twitter um you know in response to a lot of these controversies around radical feminism and trans people I just decided to share again the kind of really long article I wrote about it which is sort of intended as a one-stop resource on this subject really and so I tweeted it and in the um in the subheading I talked about subheadings and because this piece was so long and you know it was very hard to reduce to a sort of TLDR sort of summary the subs at the statesman had just sort of quoted almost a paragraph from it where I talk about how angry it made me that people on the sort of socialist left sort of decried LGBT people as sort of you know bourgeois identity politics and that I found that really frustrating so it really annoyed me that I had to put down a sort of piece on what the Tories were doing to the NHS in order to write this sort of response to this New Yorker piece. And, you know, I mentioned it was 8,500 words, so it says that in the banner headline that that's how long the piece is going to be. So I tweeted it again, and some guy called Jason, I think, kind of replied with, you know, what on earth makes you think you're important enough to write 8,500 words about anything? How dare you? And I'm like, writing doesn't really work like that, but all right. And so I just kind of ignored it. And then to my joy, um, the Verso Books Twitter feed just jumped in and said, look, well, actually, we're publishing a whole book by Juliet. So have some of that. No one cares what you think. <laughs> and um, and then and then Verso responded to that with a, a further tweet, which just said, go away, you horrible man. Uh, and this guy replied to that with, well, at least that's only four words. And uh, <laughs> my friend Adam from the football just immediately replied with just the number five. And, you know, this guy sort of, you know, is prepared to read you know so little and you know read so 
unthoroughly that he sees go away you horrible man and thinks it's four words so so adam replies with a number five and so i tweeted a picture to both of them of uh, grant holt celebrating after norwich's fifth goal against it which went in a couple of years ago but like basically you know some someone else pointed out to him that go away you horrible man was five words and he decides to count each word in that sentence and still comes to the conclusion that there's only four words there um and that's if that's the sort of you know level of comprehension of people that you're dealing with because and you know those are the people who are saying no what you do is too long make it shorter just ignore them the last thing i i asked my my guests is do you have anything to plug not as yet uh, i will have a, a memoir out in september through verso books as, as that last conversation sort of implied yeah. um i think it's good no one else has really seen it yet i think my editor likes it, it took a while but we got there yeah. um so yeah if you you know if you've read the guardian series and you liked that or if you've read the long piece of the statesman that i mentioned and you like that then hopefully you'll like this as well uh, there's an essay coming up in the next online issue of Granter as well, which is about Hollis Frampton's film Nostalgia. So yeah, read that if you like. That. Cool. And <laughs> you're not on Twitter at the moment, but do you have a website? Where um, yeah, I've got a blog called uh, At Home She's a Tourist. Um, something like Gang of Four Fans. Yeah, like excellent. Uh, which um, the opening page has got just a sort of archive of all my work. So yeah, go to that. And the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. All right, goodbye, audience. Um, I hope you've been a wonderful audience. It's hard to know, really, but I'm sure you're all right. Cheers. (laughs) Bye, everyone. And talking of plugging, the next stand-up tragedy will be on the 6th of June at the Hackney Attic, and it's Tragic Summer, a seasonal sprinkling of tragedy to keep you warm on a cold summer night. And also currently going out on the Stand Up Tragedy podcast are the episodes from Tragic Spring and it was such an amazing gig. Those podcasts are really, really quality. I recommend going and listening to them. If the last Stand Up Tragedy is anything to go on, you should definitely come to Tragic Summer on the 6th. can follow getting better acquainted on twitter at gba podcast you can like it on facebook subscribe to it pretty much anywhere that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk and remember there are lots of ways to get better acquainted